0: feeling that you could be made redundant at any time, you could be made uh, dispensable, causes you to worry about whether or not what you're doing is the right thing, whether or not what you're doing is good enough, whether you should do it at all, whether you should let people see it. And that's kind of poisonous to anyone who's actually trying to live a life that they care about. And I've found that having a partner, having someone to talk about it, gets you out of that stage, out of that stage of pure thinking, out of that stage of thinking like, ah, no, but whatever, this is a stupid idea. Hello, everyone. This is the Strelka Institute podcast, coming to you with a talk by Brendan McGetrick, a writer, designer, curator, and former studio director at Strelka. He shares his vision on addressing the challenges of today by implementing the duo concept, as opposed to relying on collective or individual efforts. The title is called The Duo, uh, a survival strategy for an inhuman age. Uh, It's sort of an over-the-top title, but I'll try to Uh, explain why the current age we live in is inhuman and why that sort of matters for us. Um, I suppose the main thing, main jumping off point is, of course, we're living in an era of sort of worship of technology, worship of the computer, worship of artificial intelligence and everything that the computer can do. And more and more, it's being um, associated with almost magical slash religious power. And this is a problem, of course, because the computer is uh, in many ways uh, developed uh, by humans, but it is kind of imagined as a way to uh, improve on what humans do. Uh, So I think really fundamentally, as we head into the 21st century, the, the question we need to ask ourselves is, what does it mean to be human in the 21st century? So essentially, what does it mean to be human at a time when there is uh, increasing investment and work and visionary, possibly positive, possibly negative thinking in the realm of information technology, in the realm of biotechnology, in the realm of neurotechnology. Uh, What does it mean to be a human in a time when our genes can be edited and new species can be created, our brains can be mapped and potentially manipulated? And of course, our jobs can be replaced and we can be supplemented or entirely um, taken over by machines. And so, you know, what does it mean to be a human is a, is one of the age-old, classic, uh, beautiful philosophical questions. But I would say it has new urgency these days, uh, and that's mostly because of automation. Uh, Oxford did a study in 2014, and they said that uh, 50% of all jobs would be automatable by 2025, so that not automated, but automatable. So that means that basically the technology will exist to replace about half the jobs that currently exist by 2025. So obviously this is gonna have very, very radical social implications. One of another study that was done estimated that one robot can do the equivalent of 5.6 American jobs. So it could basically replace 5.6 workers. uh, And that ultimately because of automation, Uh, four times more jobs will be lost than through globalization. Within that context of change, increasingly what we see is that 94% of the jobs created uh, were temporary and contract jobs. So basically insecure jobs, which are then even more easy to replace. Uh, And then finally, the social implications of that are really profound throughout certainly uh, the West, throughout America, and and in many parts of the world, uh, suicide rates and drug abuse uh, is up. We're basically in a moment when uh, we're just kind of on the verge in certain industries, and in other industries, we're very, very past the point when uh, it's become clear that as a human, you have to be able to figure out how to compete with with a machine and figure out how you can somehow convince someone that you're actually as valuable or more valuable than a machine. And this is already having really profound political implications. In the US, what the most common job is in every state. So it's kind of unbelievable to see that the most common job by far is truck driver. And truck drivers, of course, are, that is a very, very uh, precarious job. They're working very, very hard to have driverless trucks that can replace truck drivers. This is something which is inevitable and will happen uh, and will have absolutely radical implications on uh, the quality of life and the livelihoods of people who are in that profession. Uh, You see that basically all the truck drivers voted for Trump and all of the... uh, People in software development, uh, people in school, uh, s- uh, public school teaching all voted for Clinton, everybody else voted for Trump. What's interesting is that even uh, in like the places that voted for Clinton, even the places that seemingly think that they're safe because they're maybe working in knowledge work or creative work, places like New York, there used to be a sort of sense that we would live in harmony with robots this kind of naive 1950s idea that you have a robot friend and a robot butler, uh, and somehow it's, a, it's an addition to your life rather than a threat to your life. But in the last 15 years, that kind of image has changed. And now more and more, uh, I think what people imagine and what they feel that we're looking at is a future in which we are now serving the robots, and we are kind of um, arguing for our own sort of dignity in the context of uh, a system where robots are simply considered more valuable. And within that, you know, there's a very fundamental question of who gets to survive in this situation, who gets to have a life that they enjoy, who gets to be able to basically contribute to society as a meaningful citizen, and who basically is considered uh, waste. So I'll say that this for me is not a, an abstract conversation. I came in America in the 90s, and when I studied journalism, the great heroes of our time and the great, what everyone aspired to be is Woodward and Bernstein. And so Woodward and Bernstein were the two journalists who basically exposed the Watergate incident and basically brought down the presidency of Richard Nixon. So they were kind of the heroes of what you could do as a journalist, that you could apply pressure to power, that you could speak the truth, you could expose things, and you could contribute to your society in a heroic way through journalism. So this was the dream, even as late as the 90s. But at the same time, I was also learning and studying and and trying to figure out how to be a journalist at the time that the internet arrived. And the internet, of course, we know had a very drastic effect on journalism. there's a bigger thing that had a more significant effect and that absolutely now affects us all. Jobless but not workless. So I'm just gonna read this paragraph because it's super important. It's a quote from a human resources person in a telecom company in the 90s. People need to look at themselves as self-employed, as vendors who come to the company to sell their skills. In AT&T, we have to promote the concept of the whole workforce being contingent. Though most of our contingent workers are inside our walls, jobs are being replaced by projects and fields of work, giving rise to a society that is increasingly jobless but not workless. So that idea of jobless but not workless, I would say, is the reality that a lot of us are basically trapped in now. This hit very, very hard among journalists, particularly among newspaper journalists. So for me, of course, I decided that I have to get the hell out of here and I can't be a journalist. Many of my friends did the same thing. So what I've tried to do is figure out how I can remain relevant in a, in a sort of economic system and technological system that basically could decide tomorrow that it's not willing to pay money anymore for what I do. Because that's basically what happened to journalists. And I, and I experienced it myself. You just kind of, over the course of a year or even, even a month, You would just watch the amount of money per word that they would be willing to pay you go down and down and down and down and down to eventually now, like, for instance, LA Weekly, which is a shitty paper in LA, you have to pay to write for them. So that's what the state of journalism is right now. So basically, in order to avoid that moment of someone calling me and say, hey, Brendan, listen, you're a great guy, but we just we're not going to pay money anymore for that thing that you do and that you care about and that you've dedicated yourself to. I've tried to uh, do a lot of other things. I started off as a journalist, from there I became an editor, after that a researcher, after that a designer and then a curator, and now I'm the creative director of a museum. And basically all these things were just a way for me to try to make sure that I could stay working, stay active and also stay doing things that I care about and not do something like, uh, you know, whatever, I'm not gonna criticize any particular job, but do a job that I don't wanna do. Uh, and in addition to that, I had to travel all over the world to try to do it. So I worked in U.S. and in Japan and the Netherlands and China and Russia and the U.K., and now I work in the UAE. Um, and unfortunately, although I, I would say it was a, it's not a, a sort of easy thing to do, um, unfortunately, I'd say it seems to be the new standard of what's expected of people. What I would say and what I want to talk about in this talk today is this. How do you remain open and curious and flexible, enough to change, continually change. Because unfortunately, that's the reality that we're facing. The nature of data capitalism, the nature of technology, puts us in a situation where we need to figure out how to be comfortable with a total lack of stability. You're a kind of person floating in space, trying to figure out what uh, the hell is going on. And unfortunately, I would say that, that experience of floating in space is kind of the new home. Uh, and we need to figure out as people, as particularly people in the creative fields, how to feel at home in that state of total uncertainty and total uh, instability. So I would say there's two things that we need to be able to do. Uh, the first thing you need to be is mentally flexible. You need to be able to have a lot of different points of view inside your head at one time. You need to be able to uh, be totally okay with contradiction, and you need to be, uh, in a way, schizophrenic in a positive way, because you never know which brain is going to be useful to you at any given time. Unfortunately, even though you have to be basically schizophrenic and have a psychotic condition, you also need to be emotionally stable, because if you're not emotionally stable, to deal with the amount of uh, instability and change and in a way uh, unfairness that is kind of written into this system, you'd basically go mad. And I would say that's essentially what's happening. Uh, Particularly in the States, that is what's happening. But there's another another thing about it that makes it more complicated. On the one hand, you're you're on your own and you're trying to figure out how to exist in this world And you feel that you're doing that on your own in a way. And so that's difficult. But in another way, being on your own is beautiful and peaceful. But in fact, you're not actually doing it like that. You're doing that in a kind of uh, environment of total noise. If the 20th century was kind of defined by the tension between the individual and the collective, this is exactly the sort of problem that we have now. On the one hand, we're kind of encouraged to be individuals. We're encouraged to maximize ourselves as individuals and kind of compete against one another as individuals. But on the other hand, we're living in this totally absurd kind of internet era situation where the notion of what a collective is has become so large and so kind of impossible to actually wrap your head around that it's sort of uh, completely overwhelming. So what does it mean to be an individual in this system? If you're doing it in the way that you're being encouraged to, Uh, which is basically the kind of classic shock worker, the the noble, exemplary worker, who we are all encouraged to sort of uh, feel proud of. Very stressed out, very sleep deprived graphic designer who's kind of um, not seen her friends in a month because she's kind of piecing together tiny jobs, hoping to to get through. And of course, this whole culture of shock working uh, had a very rough side, a side which was really about beating down people who you felt were not adequate. Uh, but I would say there's one, there's one big difference, of course, which is that it was anti-capitalist. Fundamental difference in terms of what we're talking about today when we're in a thoroughly capitalist environment, but it's still the same basic attitude. Again, for me, this is a very recognizable thing of trying to be beaten down into being uh, someone who defines himself entirely by work at the expense of their own humanity. Uh, And I would say, there's one more example that I'd like to to point out in terms of where we're at. Uh, You once would maybe receive a a Medal of Valor for, for great labor, and now you receive this thing called the Golden Fist Bump. So I need to read this to you because this is an amazing story. Lyft, Lyft is basically a kind of Uber, get taxi equivalent. And so basically, this is a real story. I'm going to read this. This was on on Lyft's own blog, okay? So they put this out. called The Golden Fist Bump. Mary, Chicago. Shout out to all the impressive Lyft parents out there like Mary, a longtime Lyft driver who was still on the road at nine months pregnant. When contradictions, sorry, contractions persisted, she headed to hospital, but not before accepting one last request. The next morning, baby Maven Mia joined the Lyft family. So, okay, this is basically a story about a person who is giving birth and rather than go to the hospital, picked up another driver, another passenger. And, then, and Lyft, of course, is acting like this is a sort of noble behavior that we should be happy about. This is a, a terrifying behavior. And then in the end, what is beautiful Maven Mia get? She gets a Lyft onesie. That says uh, Little Miss Lyft on it. Does she doesn't? I'll tell you what she doesn't get: health insurance, and she doesn't get, and her mom doesn't get any maternity leave. But what she gets is a golden fist bump on a website, and her baby gets a onesie. And so this is ultimately what this kind of individualistic uh, nature of the current, you know, economic slash technological regime that we live in uh, puts us through, and it creates a different, a new kind of I would say Greek tragedy. And this is very important because another really key element of uh, trying to find out how you can remain relevant in an inhumane age is self-promotion and branding. So there's just absolutely unlimited numbers of books like this. Brand you, promote yourself, business model you, how to stand out, blah, blah, blah. And so basically what it does is encourages you to imagine yourself as a product. And then you think, What kind of product am I? You're basically a kind of blank canvas to figure out some sort of uh, branding, brand message. And the problem with that is that ultimately what it does is divorce you from yourself. You you suddenly are a kind of person looking at yourself from above, trying to understand not just who am I, but what kind of person am I? What is my uh, thing that I offer? I'm the whatever guy or the whatever girl. And so, of course, this is already A dehumanizing experience because it's ultimately encouraging you to look at yourself not as a fully fledged three-dimensional person but as a sort of flat thing Uh, and of course we also know that this is very much how social media works and there's a lot of bullshit involved in it and there's a lot of performance and a lot of kind of trying to figure out how to make yourself look as good as possible regardless of what is actually happening but this is where the sort of individually driven future Uh, individually-driven, competitive future is kind of bringing us. Related to that is the collective. Uh, It exists now in a sort of post-internet, post-data economy capitalist way as a sort of uh, enormous, uh, completely undifferentiated cloud of people that you can somehow connect with online and that somehow you are part of dense community of different people who could collaborate with each other. And some people are talking, some people are making music together. Some people are loving each other and some people are just weird and watching. You know, that was the kind of dream of the internet and it's still the rhetoric that the, that the believers in the internet will tell you is the case. But the reality of the internet is much more like this. That you're basically standing on your fire escape, looking in at a party, and even if you don't want to be at that party, you're forced to look at the party, and even if somehow you hate the people at the party, you still somehow hate yourself, too. This is an exhausting experience, and this is basically what the collective as it currently exists within, you know, the data economy, uh, how it functions. It's also completely exhausting because when you're trying to be something that you're kind of not, or you're trying to be something, a simplified version of yourself, it's like constant work, basically. Uh, and it's very easy to kind of feel like you're um, yeah forgetting your mantra, for instance. The other thing about it which is exhausting is that trying to care about other people, especially people you don't know, is absolutely exhausting. and you try very hard to keep an open mind and to understand the viewpoints of others, but there's simply too many viewpoints to possibly do that. So in the end, what we do with great pleasure is we make sure that we eliminate the viewpoints that are too complicated and that we don't like, and make sure that we're in a kind of realm where we can sort of at least feel safe enough to understand what's going on. So this is happening on an individual level. This is happening on a uh, citywide level, you know, you have basically entire cities and even countries now that are basically living in a kind of information bubble, in a kind of ideological bubble of uncritical agreement. Uh, and this is in, in not only encouraged, it's basically almost enforced by uh, the digital tools that we use. And this, of course, has a radical effect on the way that we look at the outside world because basically the way that we look at the outside world is constantly being. Uh, seen through the lens of what other people have told you that they like or they don't like, rather than something which is, uh, you know, purely coming from uh, yourself. And in terms of where we're going in the future, this is, I, I can't stress how much more invasive and more uh, narrow this is going to get. I think one example, which I really love, is Spotify has partnered with Ancestry.com, Ancestry.com is basically a website where you send them a sample of your DNA and then they send you back all the different uh, cultures that are somehow written into your DNA. And so basically Spotify has partnered with them, so they'll make you a playlist based on your DNA. So if you could listen to your DNA, what would it sound like? We're here as individuals operating in a massive collective, and because the collective is too big to deal with and is totally exhausting, filters are given to us by people who are going to make a lot of money from it uh, in order to help us sort of create some sense of of logic and coherence within this total ridiculous uh, noise. The problem for that, though, of course, is that if we're trying to figure out how to remain human and an human age, this is the opposite of what we should do. Because basically what we're doing is allowing them to tell us what we care about and what matters for us. And that's basically turning us into a kind of product. It's really imperative that we figure out a way to avoid this because obviously for all of our individual dignities it matters but again to get back to the original point to remain open to remain flexible mentally to remain emotionally stable we really need to actively work on it because if we outsource it to companies that claim that they're going to help us we're just getting ourselves even deeper into the trap so it's a thing that can only be done actively the problem is It's very hard to do it by yourself, and it's very hard to do it in a large group. So what I would propose and what I have tried to do in my own life is say that for the 21st century, what we need to focus on is not the individual and not the collective, but the duo, uh, the pair. Because a pair allows you to do things that you are basically impossible on your own and also almost impossible in a group. And I'll just explain a bit more about that. The first thing in order to do that is to reclaim the word friend. Uh, if we're going to take the concept of a duo seriously, we also have to take the word friend seriously. And we have to recognize that it's been absolutely debased and uh, essentially raped by Facebook uh, and turned into something which is, dis- which is utterly meaningless. So if you're talking about friends, a quote that I love about friendship from C.S. Lewis is, every real friendship is a sort of secession, even a rebellion. Uh, and I think that's the point. Uh, a friend is someone that you can basically conduct uh, a rebellion with, a rebellion against whoever, against whatever, in a, in a mode of safety and support basically. And that's essentially what I think each one of us needs to do. So basically, what I'll do for the rest of the presentation is try to explain why the duo, allow, what it allows you to do that is basically, in my opinion and in my experience, very helpful in terms of staying open mentally and staying sane uh, and, and, and emotionally. If not happy, not homicidal. So the first thing that I would say that uh, a duo allows you to do, which is really valuable, super valuable, is to lose yourself. To stop thinking about yourself as who you are and look at yourself purely stripped down to the relationship that's in front of you. And I think this is very important, particularly in this internet age, where so much of kind of the way we initially meet people is a kind of abstract version of ourselves which isn't the personal version and makes friendship, real friendship, that much more valuable because it's has nothing to do with the image that you put forth. So this is a quote, a kind of long quote, but I love this quote. So I'll read it anyway. Again, C.S. Lewis, um, in a circle of true friends, each man is simply what he is, stands for nothing but himself. This love essentially ignores not only our physical bodies, but that whole embodiment, which consists of family, job, past, and connections at home. Besides being Peter or Jane, we also hear a general character, husband or wife, brother or sister, chief or colleague or subordinate. Not among our friends. It is an affair of disentangled or stripped minds. Eros can have naked bodies, friendship, naked personalities. So I, I, I just would say that I'm not going to talk too much about this, but I would say this is the entire point. The entire point to be able to exist in an inhumane age is to detach yourself from yourself, basically, and to be able to look at yourself in its most honest way. And that's very hard to do alone, but it's relatively easy and actually enjoyable and, and an expression of love to do with another person. The, another thing that a duo allows, which, I, which I've experienced a lot and is amazing, is to silence your critic. A major part of what's so terrifying about feeling that you could be made redundant at any time, you could be made uh, dispensable, is that it causes you to worry about whether or not what you're doing is the right thing, whether or not what you're doing is good enough, whether you should do it at all, whether you should let people see it. And that's kind of poisonous to anyone who's actually trying to live a life that they care about. Yeah, I don't know if this reference works, but in, in uh, the Muppet Show, if you ever watched the Muppet Show, there's two characters who are basically sitting on the uh, sitting there and they're constantly criticizing uh, everybody who's on stage. So I would say these guys are basically the enemy. These guys are what we've all internalized through years of being told that our ideas are bad or being told that something's not going to work or being discouraged to do something. You internalize that over time. It's then made 10 times as bad because there's real economic consequences put to the other side of it. You're kind of sitting there trying to think about what you should do uh, in pure abstract thought, eliminating things, moving on and sort of never actually getting around to the doing of something. Uh, And for me, I've definitely had a problem with this, uh, completely, and I've found that having a partner, having someone to talk about it, uh, gets you out of that stage, out of that stage of pure thinking, out of that stage of thinking like, ah, no, but whatever, this is a stupid idea, just going forward. And And an example of that that I would say is Larry David and Jerry Seinfeld, they made the show Seinfeld together. And I read this interview with them once where basically, Larry David said, yeah, I used to say ideas to you that were totally ridiculous, that I, that I was completely embarrassed to even think. But I would say them to you, and then you would say, yeah, okay, so then what, what what else do we do? And then we would make a TV show about it, and that was an idea that I never would even tell anyone. I was kind of embarrassed to, to, to say it, and now we're putting it on television. And that's because of the power of a partner who, who supports you and loves you and wants you to uh, be your fullest self. Another thing that I wanna say, which is important about having a partner or uh, being in a duo, uh, is that it allows you to create an audience of one. The idea of thinking about a large audience of what you do is really uh, destructive and ultimately creates a lot of kind of bland and, and scared work. But I think somehow, because of, particularly because of the way we live in celebrity culture, we're all kind of like imagining somehow that there's some audience for what we're doing and that we're, what we're doing will somehow be appreciated in some way. But for me, this is a toxic way of thinking, and it's really counterintuitive to being, again, flexible mentally and and emotionally stable because it's constantly projecting to an audience that's imaginary. It also obviously kind of coincides with the surveillance culture that makes us feel that we're being watched all the time anyway. A pair that I I would suggest is great is um, Jean-Paul Sartre and and, uh, Simone de Beauvais. They were a couple, they were friends, they were colleagues, they were a lot of things, they were companions. But toward the end of his life, Satra said something, something really beautiful. Uh, he said to her, I had only one special reader, and that was you. When you said to me, I agree, it's all right, then it was all right. I published the book and I didn't give a damn about the critics. And I think this is a really important and beautiful idea. And I can say from my own experience, I DJed for a lot of years. And when I would DJ, I would always, when I DJed at my best, I would DJ for one person in the club or at the party. Uh, Because when I did that, I would be most myself because I would wanna give that person an amazing experience. When I tried to give the whole crowd an amazing experience, then I'm picking like kind of crowd-pleasing generic songs and I'm being a kind of uh, algorithm. Uh, But when you're trying to do it for a single person, you're trying to give that person a real experience and then that's actually coming from you. Uh, And I think it's important to say that because the kind of tech obsession And the startup obsession is this question, will it scale? Whenever you make a kind of startup or you make an internet product, the question is, will it scale? It works okay, but can you do it for 10 million people? Can you do it for 100 million people? Can you do it for a billion people? But this is a totally stupid question, and it's one of the reasons why so many things, which are actually started off sort of interesting, become uh, boring and also become very inflexible. Uh, And I think a lot of it is related to the fact that If you're only thinking about large uh, numbers, then you're not really thinking about the essence of what you're, you're doing and why it matters. I once read that the relationship between the Dead Sea and the Sea of Galilee is they're both connected by the River Jordan, and they both receive water from the River Jordan. But the difference is that the Sea of Galilee has an outlet and the Dead Sea doesn't. So the Dead Sea takes in water, but it has nowhere to go. And this is why it's dead. And the Sea of Galilee takes in water, but it also releases water, and this is why it's alive. And I would say the same is true for people, and I'd say it's almost a, a kind of health issue, that we need to create things, we need to share things, we need to do things that we care about, but we don't need to do it for some big audience. And this is why, again, the internet is, and social media is so uh, destructive, because the reality is that just doing something for a single person that you love or a single person that you care about is the same feeling than doing it for a big crowd, uh, but it's much easier to think about doing, and it's much easier to keep in your head. Another thing that having a duo allows you to be, which is invaluable, is to be confused. It's the human condition to be confused, and I think it's very important. And uh, the world would be in a better place if we would just to admit that we're confused. If people would admit that they actually just don't know what the hell is going on, particularly related to politics or the economy or whatever, it's a lot easier to then accept other people's opinions because you realize that you don't know. So then you're kind of curious to know. So an example of not doing this that I'd like to point out is this recent uh, debate that Slava Žižek and Peterson had. Okay, so I would say this debate is a great example of how not to do anything. Uh, This is basically two people not talking in any meaningful way, and no attempt to to find common ground. No one, no attempt to under, to admit that you're kind of working things through. Just two people basically talking past each other. And I think that both of these guys are profoundly confused about some things. And if they would admit it, they'd be in a lot better place. They'd be a lot healthier intellectually. So what I would say about that is, one of the beautiful things about being confused uh, is children. Uh, because they're in a perpetual state of confusion, also pets. You never reach a point where you understand what's going on, and the second you do, then it's over. Your growth as a person, your flexibility, your, your ability to kind of remain valuable is gone, because you think you know the deal, and the deal's going to change. And, either, and maybe even if, even if you're right, which you're probably not, it'll be different. So I would say children are uh, one of the kind of great partners to have, and to respect them as an equal. Not to kind of only imagine them as someone that you can then give your great wisdom to, but to get on their level and understand the world through their eyes because a lot of times their level is a kind of much more essential, basic level that's much more flexible mentally, much more. Another thing I'll say about a duo is that you don't have to talk. Talking, as I I feel right now, (laughs) talking is overrated. It's also important to remember that in duos, there's so much you can experience uh, without having any language at all. And to remember that uh, the physicality of life is a big part of uh, what's being taken away. And remaining human in the 21st century is a big part of it is remaining a physical being. The physical in a duo is something to emphasize as much as possible, you know, on, on every level. And it's something which is so much more fun and so much more inspiring to do with a partner than to do on your own. Um, So that's another really critical thing in terms of maintaining our humanity. Another really critical thing I'd say about having a partner is that they don't have to be successful. Uh, One of the really awful things about the way that we're kind of terrorized by success now is that you're constantly being shown these kind of bullshit articles like, I raised two successful CEOs and a doctor, here's the biggest mistake that parents are making, encouraging everyone to kind of feel insecure about what they're doing and have some women who, like, nobody's ever heard of, um, tell you what you're supposed to do. The beauty of life and the beauty of uh, so much of human creat- creativity and creation is how much of it didn't get appreciated. Uh, so this book, Great Shit, Nobody Noticed, the world's longest and saddest book, is something that I would encourage everyone to uh, try to read. It doesn't actually exist, but try to make your own, because basically there's just a tremendous amount of inspiration and uh, And I think that's super important because we're living in this kind of deluge of how-to books and how to do this and how to do that. But I like this book, do you have any why-to books? Uh, And I think that's what's beautiful about talking to people who maybe didn't have success is that they'll explain to you what they were doing and why. And that a lot of times is much more valuable than understanding the successful execution of a project that went perfectly. Another point about the duo that I will say, you don't have to be like them. I think this is an important point because there's a lot to be said for uh, relationships of opposites. Walter Gropius and uh, Johannes Eaton, they're basically the uh, two, two kind of founding pillars of the Bauhaus. So Gropius was, of course, the sort of um, leader. He was the person who kind of ran things. He was a person who was masterful uh, diplomat, masterful administrator. Eden was the person who uh, conceptualized the kind of foundation course that all of the uh, new students took to first introduce them to what design was. And this is the kind of radical thing that that the Bauhaus introduced that remains very um, relevant. And these people were basically polar opposites. Gropius was a very suave, kind of sophisticated guy. Eden was a kind of um, cult figure almost who was basically deeply into uh, mysticism. And nevertheless, they kind of work together as a kind of superego and an id, uh, pushing each other to make something that they otherwise would have never made. And I think this is also very important because part of the problem with this obsession with friendship that we have is that it makes us kind of feel that ultimately you need to work with people who are similar to you or that you automatically get on with. And a lot of times that's not, that doesn't actually work. I would really think that beyond the word friend, we need to actually return to the concept of solidarity, which basically means that we're together but we're not necessarily the same and we're not maybe even outside of the context that we're working in. We might not even agree with each other but we're committed to something together. And I think particularly if you talk about issues like climate change, any issues related to large scale political or social problems, solidarity is what's needed. And at the moment, the nature of the way things work is that they basically work against solidarity by enforcing a false friendship or enforcing a, or enforcing a false kind of individuality. You don't have to like them. You don't have to like your partner. I think this is really important. One of the really key things to try to figure out about the present and about the future is the many different kind of lenses that are that it can be viewed through. Obviously, at any time, there's a million different ways that any moment Uh, Can be understood and part of our obligation as people is to try to keep as many of those as we can in our heads at one time so The lens basically that currently defines a lot of reality that I'm talking about is the market Uh, And it's a sort of faith in the market that basically assumes that all problems can be solved by the market no matter what and This is a this is a a kind of philosophy or almost a religion that people don't um, many people don't question Last, and this is very important, I would say this is the final key point, your partner doesn't have to be living. One of the really um, difficult dehumanizing elements of uh, the present and of the future is its insistence that the past doesn't matter. Everything is presented as some sort of revolutionary thing that makes all of history totally irrelevant uh, and has utterly changed the world in an unrecognizable way. And this is obviously nonsense, and this is obviously only done by people who are trying to sell you that technology. You end up in a total vacuum of trying to understand where we're going tomorrow, because we're basically living in a void of any present or or past. So, in that void, of course, what about tomorrow? You will always get some kind of crappy product that's telling you that this is what tomorrow is. But the reality is that. This is never tomorrow. This is just some new thing that is being connected to tomorrow to make it seem like it's special. So for me, this is a super, super important point, because what knowing the past allows you to do is have courage to face what you have to do. Because you have an unlimited resource of people who've done different things in different ways that you can draw on for support. And that's why I mean that your partner doesn't have to be living, your partner can be Virgil. Your partner can be somebody who gives you inspiration and gives you courage, because that's the only way to actually be able to have the flexibility and emotional balance to actually deal with total uncertainty all the time, is to feel that you have encouragement and support from someone that you care about. And that person can be someone you admire who lived a thousand years ago. Also, a big part of having partners who are not, um, who are not of the present um, is that it allows you to think about uh, the way we're doing things and and sort of apply a critical pressure to them. Brandon was part of Strelka X Summer in 2019, a 10-year anniversary edition of our public program here in Moscow. To watch Brandon's full lecture, as well as talks by other experts and guests at Strelka, visit our YouTube channel. Follow the link in the episode's description. Or just wait for another episode of the podcast.